Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all thy works thy hand hath made, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Friends, would you consider with me this morning the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you do that with me? For what wonders he has done. Has he not considered first God's great work of creation? Is it not the most spectacular thing to, to pause and to consider that he has brought out of nothing the entire universe that we inhabit? That he has brought by a word the very planets in being. That he has parted the seas, that he has created all of the birds of the air and all of the fish of the sea. And then what has he done? He's taken the dirt. Like he's taken the very dust of the earth. And what has he done with it? He has formed all of the intricacies of the human mind and the human body. Is it, is it not a remarkable thing to consider? And then consider with me God's great work of salvation. Is this not even more wonderful? That God has not only uh, planned a work to rescue men from their sin, but what has he done? He has actually completed that work and done so himself. That the Lord Jesus Christ for you, for, for me, that he has fought and he has defeated all of the warriors, all of the armies of Satan, and, and, and how has he done it? Through his own perfect, humble obedience. And an obedience to the very point of death. What glories these are, aren't they? What breathtaking, wonderful work. And so, friends, this morning, the question that I want to ask you today is this. How are you responding today to this wonder-working Christ. How are you responding to this miracle-working, this awesome creator God? How are you responding? Is there still with you the reality of sheer unbelief? Like even this morning, in the face of creation, in the face of his word, in the face of the good news, are you still, in fact, just dismissing the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that it? You know, saying to Jesus, no, actually, I want more. I want more time, Jesus. I want more evidence of your work if you expect me to believe in you. Is that it? And if it's not that, maybe you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. But is it true of you this morning that perhaps at this stage of your life you are losing sight of the miracles and the wonders that Christ is doing and has done for you? Is that it? Well, today, in this portion of Scripture that we've got in Mark chapter 8, after what is a, 
uh, most glorious reminder of the power of Jesus, we are shown by God a couple of truly defective responses to Jesus, to his person and to his work. And so it is these things, this miracle and the responses to it, that I want us to consider as a congregation just now. So let me say to you what I always say to you week in, week out. Uh, Would you please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 8. And as we look at these things, please have the word of Almighty God, the living word of God, open before you. Friends, let's notice here, first of all, an advancement by Jesus. An advancement by Jesus. Can I begin um, just by stating the obvious? I don't expect a sort of round of applause for this, but the feeding miracle that we've just read together in Mark chapter 8, it bears a great resemblance to the earlier feeding miracle that Mark has recorded for us, the feeding of the 5,000. Isn't that truly the obvious thing to say? It is, isn't it? But is it not worth us as a congregation considering that for a moment? I mean, surely you see this. The parallels here are, between the 5,000 and 4,000, the parallels are absolutely uh, amazing. So would you do this with me? Would you call to mind the feeding, that earlier miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. You remember it was, it was only a few weeks ago that as a congregation we studied that. Consider the feeding of the 5,000 and then look at this with me. Like there is here in Mark 8 a similar gathering of an expectant crowd before Jesus. Isn't that the case? That happens in both instances. There is also a similar material problem at hand. Like, what's the problem in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000? Both times, they ain't got no food. And there is here, do you notice, there is a similar compassion by Jesus. What does he want to do both times? He wants to feed them, doesn't he? He wants to meet their need. And again here, there is a, a similar dismissiveness by the twelve, isn't there? Again, remarkably, they say, Well, Jesus, how are we going to feed all of these people? And there is a similar sparseness of resources available to Jesus. Both times, what is it? What has he got? Just a few, come on, a few loaves and uh, just a few fish. And there is a similar instruction for the crowd to sit down before the Lord. And there's a similar prayer. And a similar breaking of bread. And there's a similar method of distribution. And there's a similar eating. And there's a similar satisfaction. And at the end of all of this, what do we see? There is a similar gathering in of abundant leftovers. Do you see the point, don't you? The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, what are they? They are very nearly identical. So here's the question we've got to to ask, surely. Why? Well, recently I decided it was time for my son Colin to become a man. (laughs) So what did I do? I took him into London, into town, to an American diner. 
where he and I ordered as much meat as uh, two human beings could ever possibly consume. And as we waited uh, for all of this meat to arrive, uh, what we did, Colin and I, were while away the time, desperately trying to solve one of these spot-the-difference type quizzes that the waiter had kindly left on the table. Uh, you know the sort of thing that I'm talking about, do you? Uh, you know, two pictures that are very almost identical, aren't they? And what are we supposed to do with these things? Well, get the clues in the name, isn't it? We are supposed to spot the differences between the two. Now, in all seriousness, you see, don't you, that that is what you and I have got in front of us today. You see, by Mark recording this miracle in this way, and these two miracles in this way, you see what he's inviting us to do? He's not merely inviting us to study these words. He's inviting us to compare these two miracles and to contrast these two miracles. And when we do that this morning, I wonder this. Do you notice the most obvious difference between the two feeding miracles? I ask, where was the previous miracle, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000? Where was it set? Can you remember? It was set on the west side of Galilee, wasn't it? It was set on the other side of the lake. Ah! It was set in the heart of Jewish territory. But where are we today? Can you remember from last week where we are? Today we are in the Decapolis. We are on the other side of the lake. We today are in the heart of Gentile territory. Hang on a second. Do you see the point? Do you see the message of the text here? What we are seeing before us is the geographical extension of the messianic mission of Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus is not confining himself to the geographical boundaries of Israel. What is he doing here? He's stepping out, isn't he? He's taking the bread of life to whom? To the Gentiles now. He's taking it to all of the nations of this earth. And what I want you to see is just how this very, very fundamental point is brought out in a couple of ways in the text. For instance, now some commentators point this out. They point out this Gentile emphasis here in the language that Mark uses. For example... In the feeding of the 5,000, Mark uses particularly and especially Jewish words. The Jewish word for a basket. Here, what does Mark do? He uses a particularly, peculiarly Greek word for basket. Here's another thing. Now think about this. Other commentators point out the Gentile emphasis in the numbers that are recorded here. Now, I wonder, do you see what I mean by that? Now, think back, think back to the feeding of the 5,000. How many baskets were filled at the end? What is it? Twelve, isn't it? And we had 5,000 people fed. You see that these are obviously Jewish numbers, don't you? The 12 tribes of Judah, the five books of the Torah. But what do we have here in front of us? How many baskets are filled here? Do you see? What is it? Seven baskets. The scriptural number of completion. And we have four 
thousand people fed. Do you, do you see the picture? Jesus here is heading out to the four corners of the globe. And he is taking his message, the good news, where? To Israel? No, not now. No, to the whole, to the entire, to the complete globe. And if you're yet to be convinced by this Gentile emphasis, I wonder, did you notice the, <laughs> the other very subtle difference in the text here? Now think about the feeding of the 5,000 again. What does Jesus do? He takes the bread and the fish and he takes them together, doesn't he? And he takes the bread and the fish and he prays for them both. And he breaks them both. Now notice the difference here. Very slight But here, the bread alone is numbered, is it not? We have seven loaves. What about the fish? The fish, that occurs later. Like the fish almost is an afterthought, is it not? The fish sidelined. You know, we're not even told here how many fish Jesus has. It does not seem to matter. The emphasis here, and this miracle, is on the the spotlight, the stress. It's all on the bread. Do you see why? What were the words of the Syro-Phoenician woman? Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Isn't that what we're seeing here? Isn't that what we're being shown in Mark chapter 8? The Gentile dogs at last, at long last, they are feasting, they are eating the children's bread. Friends, when we see together the Gentile emphasis of this miracle, I think we in here, London City Presbyterian Church, the nations gathered together. We should rejoice. And rejoice at what? We should today rejoice at the similarities in these miracles. Because don't you see, that's the point. We're seeing that the God of Israel, we're seeing that the Jewish Messiah, that he works amongst us in the same way as he does amongst his own. Isn't that the point? What are we seeing here? We see that Jesus has on us the same compassion. Isn't that beautiful? He has for us the same provision. You and I, we too, just like the people of Israel, we can eat and we can be satisfied in the Christ. Praise God for this beautiful, glorious advancement by Jesus. What is he doing? He is taking the bread of life and he's taking it into Gentile lands. A second thing we must notice together is an abandonment by Jesus. An abandonment by Jesus. We've mentioned, or I have mentioned, Many, many parallels that exist between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Did you notice the parallel that I didn't mention? What happens after both of those miracles? Almost immediately after both feeding miracles, the disciples scarper, don't they? They leave the scene and they leave the scene immediately and they do so in both instances, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000, they leave the scene by boat. 
there is, of course, a very important difference here. Here, Jesus is with them as they sail. They are not in the boat alone. Now, every one of us in here, I'm sure at some stage or other, we have all seen footage of hostile border guards, haven't we? You know, you've seen this... You've seen footage of that on your TV. Guys, men at a border post somewhere. And they're usually armed with two things, aren't they? They're usually armed with a Kalashnikov rifle and also armed with a thoroughly sort of menacing look. Hostile border guards, right? Well, is that not what we see next in Mark chapter 8? Because as Jesus sails back across the lake, as he seeks to enter back into Jewish territory, who's waiting for him? Who confronts him? Have a look at verse 11. We've got thoroughly hostile Pharisees. And what are they seeking to do? They're seeking to check his credentials, are they not? Not his papers, but they're seeking to see a sign. They want a sign from Jesus that, that he is truly of God. And do you know what? By this stage of Mark's gospel, come on, we've been in Mark now for, what is it, eight chapters? We can see how transparent these men are, can't we? I mean, these Pharisees, they're not, they're not looking here at worship, are they? They don't want to worship the Lord Jesus or worship God. What are they trying to do here with this call for a sign? They are trying to test Jesus. This is an attempt to discredit our Lord. Now, were you here last week in the morning sermon, morning service? Last week, isn't it true that we as a congregation heard, as it were, a sigh from God. Isn't that right? That Jesus sighed as he healed the man who was deaf and mute. Well, we see and hear something very similar this morning. In verse 12, we are told that our Lord Jesus, he sighs again. But I need you to understand this. Here with the Pharisees, this is not a sigh of pity like it was last week. This is not with the Pharisees. This is not a sigh of mercy upon a man. What is this from Jesus, from God? This is a sigh of exasperation. I'll tell you what it is. It's a sigh of anger. Because what is it that, that Jesus does? How does he respond to this Pharisaic request for a sign? What does he do? He refuses these men. And he says no here. And why? Is it not because they have been shown enough? I mean, Jesus has been in Jewish territory now for so long. What is it? Eight chapters. And, and, and he has shown these people so much. Hasn't he? Hasn't he? I mean, he's taught these people. And he's cared for these people. And he's healed them. And he's now he's fed them. And he's forgiven some of their sins. And what do these Pharisees say? No, we want more, more Jesus. And he is angry. He sighs, enough is enough. They will not be given any more. And friend, if you are not a Christian in here this morning... 
I wonder, do you see before you there how it is that God looks on you today and how God reacts to you today? Can I say this to you? The Lord God of heaven and earth, he looks on you this morning and he sighs. Do you understand that? That the Lord God, he sighs with great displeasure at your unbelief. And you see why that is, don't you? It is for the same reasons as here. You have been shown enough. I mean, you have been shown by God such grace and such goodness throughout your life, haven't you? And some of you have been brought up in in, in Christian homes. You know, you've been faithfully witnessed to by Christian parents. Others have been brought up in the church, haven't you? And you've heard the gospel preached week in, week out. You've been shown so much by God. And consider even what God has shown you in this very sermon series. What do you think about that? What have you seen? What has God shown you? He's shown you exactly the same as the Pharisees saw. He's shown you the miracles of Jesus, hasn't he? And he's shown you the power of Jesus. He's shown you the gospel of Jesus. And what do you say to him today by your unbelief? You see, show me more. I want to see more. Show me one more sign if you expect me to trust in you. Friend, if anything this morning, if anything, I would ask you to take one phrase from this away and to really give some thought to what it means for your life. Mark says, now listen to me. He says the end of verse 13 about the Pharisees after their interaction with Jesus. He says these words. Then Jesus left them. And I need you to understand what that means. It is not, hear me, it is not a throwaway comment. It's not just like a a little editorial expression. Mark uses that phrase in his gospel as a true expression of disassociation, of disconnection. Do you see it? This here, this very point, Mark chapter 8, this is the point where Jesus turns from the Pharisees. This here is the point where he abandons them, never again to try and convince them of who he is. And you see it, don't you? Don't you see it? If you continue in your unbelief, that point will one day come to you. The point where the Lord God says of you because of your persistent unbelief, he says, okay, Enough is enough. Okay, have it your way. You have had your chance. And I'm saying to you this morning, you never want to see what the Pharisees saw here. Like you never want to see the back of the Lord Jesus Christ moving away with his people and leaving you behind. 
And I, I know, uh, I know that I say this all the time. I mean it though. Friends, would you not consider today these weighty things? Like, would you not consider these eternal matters that we are discussing and looking at this morning? Would you not even this afternoon take time to consider the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you not even contemplate bowing to him and seeing that he is gracious and he is good and he is, he's merciful? He doesn't want to abandon you. He does not in any way want to leave you behind. He loves you. And he desperately wants you to be saved today. Would you not consider that? Would you not even today, what did we say before? Would you not come aboard the boat? We see an abandonment by Jesus here. And then last, we see an admonishment by Jesus. An advancement, an abandonment, but an admonishment by Jesus. You can see, I think, that there is a motif, a theme that runs through all of the verses that we read today. Do you see that? There is a motif of bread. Isn't there? That theme recurs all the way through. And so when we move into this third scene where again the twelve are aboard a boat with Jesus, it doesn't come as a surprise to us, does it? That Jesus uses that sort of imagery here when he is warning the twelve. What does he speak of? What does he say? He speaks of the yeast of Herod. He speaks of the yeast of the Pharisees. <laughs> Wait a minute here. Do you see what's going on with the disciples? Uh, surely you would agree with me that there's a, there's a fairly large dose of irony going on in this portion of Scripture. Because given the incredible abundance of bread we had just a moment ago, isn't it almost laughable what these boys have forgotten to take aboard the boat? What have they forgotten? They've forgotten to take bread onto the boat. We are told this. This is the expression. We are told that they have only got one loaf. Now, even if the NIV doesn't particularly bring it out well, you see what's happened here. The disciples are not listening to Jesus, are they? Like Jesus is seeking to warn them. He's seeking to give them this incredible, incredibly important instruction. What are they doing at this point? The disciples are panicking, aren't they? They're panicking. Where are we going to get something to eat? They're not listening to Jesus. They're panicking with themselves. How are we going to eat? Now, the subsequent rebuke that Jesus gives these men is very strong. And as we finish this morning, I just want you to notice with me how this rebuke culminates. Would you look with me at the end of verse 18? We shall finish with this. Jesus lays down this great question of admonishment. He says, Men, do you not remember? 
And surely, friends, you see what Jesus is saying there. Is he not saying, are you kidding me? You're worried about bread. I have just fed 4,000 people with a few crumbs. Before that, I fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. And you seriously are ignoring me. And you're worried about how you're going to eat. Do you not remember? Do you not know how I am? And I end with this. Surely you and I see the challenge that is implicit in that for us as Christians. Because let's face facts. See today, are you and I not exactly like the disciples were at this point? Is that right? I mean, what's happening in your life just now? The Lord God Almighty is seeking to instruct you, isn't he? He's seeking to speak to you. He's seeking to warn you. He's seeking to show you such things of his glory. And what are we like? We are worried and concerned about material things. Isn't that exactly how it is? I mean, I'll ask you this, and I want you to think about it just for a moment. What has been the dominant thinking of this past week for you? I mean, have we really been desperately seeking to hear Jesus as he speaks to us? Is that it? Or have we not been panicking about the practical stuff? Panicking about financial provision. Panicking about our kids. Panicking about our health. And panicking about our work and our, and our relationships. Do you not hear then what God says to you this morning? Do you not remember? Do you not remember what I have done for you? And what is that? That Jesus Christ has had his body broken. Do you see? A miracle has been wrought for us. Finally and forever. The Lord Jesus Christ. He has fed our spiritual need. And so how should we be living today? We should be living grasping what I think is the second great irony of these verses. What was it that was said about the disciples? They only had one loaf with them in the boat. You see the truth of that? Do you see the truth of that for us? We have all we need. We need not be anxious. Why not? We have today in the boat with us the one who is the bread of life. Friends, I think you and I as the people of God, we should rejoice because what can we do? We can look back on the saving miracle of the cross. And because of that, we know today, we know tomorrow, you can know this week, you can know forevermore that the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, will meet your every need. Isn't that glorious? Right it is then that the people of God today should stand together and we should save Christ. What? How great thou art. How great thou art. Let's pray.